Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you that that we receive life, all life, even the the beating of our heart um, through your grace. And all our days indeed belong to you. Our, Our life with you is in your hands. Our faith comes as a gift from you. And we pray that as we turn to your word, as we seek to be nourished by your word, that your Holy Spirit would now take this word that you have for us today and that it would fill our hearts and that we would leave with joy and a renewed desire to live for you and to serve you and to love you with all of our hearts. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Please uh, turn to the the book of Ruth, the Old Testament book of Ruth. We're going to look at chapter 4. One of the the challenges of preaching through the Bible in a year is um, capturing all the important parts of the Bible story. And we have this book of Ruth, four chapters long, and it's a unique book. Um, because largely it's about uh, just a few individuals and their life. And in many of the books that we read in the Bible, um, we, we see those books written about the people of God, the Israelite people of God, um, or prophetic announcements to God's people. But, but this book is largely about just, just a family. And, um, and, and so, so one question is, why, why this, this intimate little book? Um, why is it a part of our Bible story? What lesson do we see in it that, that helps complete this, this storyline, this picture of, of God's grace in the Bible? And another challenge of preaching through the Bible in a year is you come to a book like Ruth and you, you can't spend four weeks on it, you can spend one week on it. And so you have to kind of go through it lightning fast. Uh, You could preach an hour-long sermon, which would not be very agreeable on many Sundays, especially not a potluck Sunday when we're ready to go eat together. So you've got to keep the sermon down a little bit. So um, here's the lightning fast overview of Ruth. I hope you've read it. If you haven't read it, you can read it this week. Um, in its entirety, and it's just a wonderful story. But Ruth, Ruth is uh, focuses on the personal story of, of largely three individuals, a Hebrew woman named Naomi, her daughter-in-law Ruth, who is a Moabite. So Naomi is from the nation Israel. Ruth was born in the land of Moab. She is by birth uh, not an Israelite. And a Hebrew man named Boaz and Naomi, her husband, and their two sons flee a famine in Israel by traveling to the land of Moab. And there, her two sons find Moabite wives. One is Ruth. And in time, Naomi's husband and, uh, and her two sons, they die in Moab. So she and her 
daughters-in-law, Ruth being one of them, they returned to Israel. And they, Ruth and Naomi actually, are the two that return. And they must rely on the compassion of others to survive. And that's not an understatement. They have to rely on the generosity and compassion of others to survive. In due time, a man named Boaz befriends Ruth and provides food from his farm for her and her family. And Ruth approaches Boaz and asks him to be uh, what was known at that time as um, her kinsman redeemer, which was part of the social structure to care for widows. At great personal expense, Boaz agrees to buy back Naomi's family land that she must sell to survive in order to preserve it for her family. And he promises, he agrees to marry Ruth. Now, if you've read Ruth before, you know that Boaz is a real likable guy. Everyone wants Boaz to wind up with Ruth. This would be a match made in heaven indeed. But there is one dilemma. There is one man who is closer in line to be the kinsman redeemer for for Ruth. And Boaz must ask him first, this other fellow, if he will redeem Ruth himself. That's the background leading up to Ruth chapter 4. So I want to read... Um, we're going to read through verses 17, but we'll take a little bit at a time. So start with me in verse 1. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the, the guardian redeemer, the kinsman redeemer, this closer in line fella that he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, Sit here. And they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to you, to your attention, and suggest that you buy it. In the presence of these seated here, and in the presence of the elders of my people, if you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, then tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am the next in line. I will redeem it, he said. So in ancient Israel's custom, uh, there was something known as leverate marriage. It was a special arrangement to care for the widows of the people and to preserve family land. A man known as a guardian redeemer or uh, more familiarly, perhaps known as a kinsman redeemer because he was related to the deceased husband of the widow, could marry that widow to provide for her and purchase any land that she may have. Now, uh, the, the pastor and preacher Alistair Begg puts it like this, very often acquiring an additional, white, an additional wife through leverate marriage was seen more as a responsibility, like a duty where acquiring the land of a widow was seen more as an opportunity. So think of the husband, the possible kinsman redeemer, thinking, well, I already have one wife. Why would I need another one? But I have to look for this. I have to look after this unfortunate widow. That's my responsibility. That's my duty. 
However, I can acquire her land. I will pay for it, but that could be a great benefit to me, so that's my opportunity. That's how it went in those days. And so far, this this man, the nearer kinsman redeemer to Ruth, says, okay, I agree to take Naomi as my wife, and I'll purchase her land. That's an opportunity of mine. Now, there was one other important provision in Leverate Marriages, If you and your new wife were to have a male child, he would not take your name, but rather he would take the name of the widow's deceased husband. And any land that you purchased would not go to your first children from your first marriage, but any land that you purchased would go to that child that you have with that second wife. So think about that. Your children from your first marriage would have no rights over the new land that you purchased whatsoever, even though part of their inheritance went to pay for it. And all seems like it's a done deal for this fella and Naomi. Because up to this point, he's likely thinking, well, Naomi, remember, she's the mom in this story with her two adult sons that had died, two adult daughter, daughter-in-laws. And Naomi is getting pretty old, and there's no way that she and I will have a child together. So he's feeling pretty safe. But then Boaz provides a little more information to this fella. See, Boaz is shrewd as well, and he wants to marry Ruth. So he's held back some information from the first guardian redeemer. It's like his ace up his sleeve to pull out at just the right moment in the conversation. So look at verse 5. In verse 5, he says, Boaz said, Okay, on the day, that you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. Yeah, in order to buy the land back, this opportunity of yours, you have to marry Ruth as well. And don't forget, she's not an Israelite by birth. She is a Moabite. And very likely you will have a child with her. And then verse 6. At this, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. And then in verse 8, he repeats again to Boaz, you buy it yourself. Boaz, you buy the land. You take Naomi. You take Ruth. And that is the answer that we've all been waiting for. And now on to verse 9, and as we read through these next seven, eight verses or so, I want you to notice how many names are mentioned. We won't quite play the game, count the names, but just notice a lot of names are mentioned. And that's important. We'll talk about that. Then Boaz answered to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. Those are the 
three fellows that died in Moab. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are my witnesses. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah, And be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and give birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord who... This day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he be famous throughout the land. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The woman living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse the father of David. So in those eight verses, I think I counted 14 different people who are named. Everyone has a name. In the book of Ruth, names are extremely significant. So all of these people are named. Even Naomi's husband and sons are named, even though the only action that is said of them in this book is that they have died. Now, because names are so important in Ruth, that helps explain verse 10. I want you to look at verse 10 again. Put it on the screen so we can take a close look at it. Boaz says, I have acquired Ruth as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear, will not be cut off from among his family or from his hometown. Now, it's real significant that Boaz mentions he is doing this to maintain the name of Ruth's deceased husband. And you may think, now, today, it's not seen too much of a tragedy when a last name doesn't get passed down to the next generation. You know, a husband and a wife have their first child. It's a beautiful girl. They have another child. It's another beautiful girl third baby comes along, and it's a girl. And other than dad having a hard time gaining control over the TV remote in the years to come, it's not really seen as a tragedy if he has no sons to pass down the, the family name. That is, that's not as important today, is it? So we have to think, why was it so important to have a name to endure, to be passed down in these ancient times. Your name was connected with your character, with your honor. In verse 11, when the elders praise Boaz for redeeming Ruth, they say, may you have a name in Bethlehem. 
may you be known in Bethlehem. Not, not as a celebrity. That's not what they're wishing, that he would have celebrity status in Bethlehem. What they're saying is, may you be remembered for this kind, gracious, generous act of yours. So your name was connected with who you are, how you lived your life. Now, do you know who doesn't get a name in the book of Ruth? All these people are named. Who doesn't get a name? Well, what's the name of this other fella that we read about in verse 1? The, the nearer kinsman redeemer. He doesn't have a name in the story. In verse 1, Boaz calls this other fellow friend. I look back at verse 1. Hey, friend. And let me tell you, that is... That, as an English translation, is very generous to this individual. I mean, a much better way of reading it is so-and-so. Hey, so-and-so. How would you like being called, hey, so-and-so? But that is what he is called by Boaz in this story. Hey, Mr. So-and-so, sit down here. Let me talk to you. I was thinking about Bethlehem at this time. Bethlehem probably had no more than a couple of hundred people in it. And this nearer kinsman redeemer, this fellow that does not have a name, he and Boaz actually are family members somehow. They might be cousins, they might be second cousins, but most certainly Boaz would know his real name. And yet he calls him, hey, so-and-so, sit here. So this is, a, this is deliberate storytelling. Of course Boaz knows his name, but this is deliberate storytelling to make a very important point. What is the point? The point, of course, is that the unnamed man is not a person of honor. He didn't make his name memorable through any goodness that he showed. So one of the big points of this book of Ruth is having a name, maintaining a name. So question for us today, how do you maintain your name? And if you're one of those people that are like, I, I like to be in the background. I don't like anyone to know what I'm doing. Well, how, do, how, do we, how do we care about this question? If, if that's, that's you, I just want to be in the background. How, how do you maintain your name? Think of your name being your life. You've got one life. How do you live your life well? That is the concern with the names in Ruth, living your life well. So how do you maintain your name? By realizing the faithless way of living is living in a way that's all about yourself and taking care of your own needs at the complete ignorance of the needs of others. You see, the person who is living that way, even though he is elite. This unnamed kinsman redeemer is, is elite enough to purchase this land of Naomi. He has, he has status. He has wealth. But he isn't given a name in this story. He is the one, at the end of the day, who won't be remembered. So a few things about keeping or maintaining a name. One, choose the storyline to follow with your life. I think there's, there's two alternatives two alternate storylines for your life 
in Ruth chapter 4, and one is self-preservation. Let me preserve myself. Let me feed into my own estate. Let me focus on my self-interest, and I'll help if I see that there is a significant advantage to me. And the world is full of people who have amassed quite a lot and who have lived according to that self-preservation storyline. And there's another storyline in the Bible where one of the characters intentionally does not receive a name. Jesus tells a parable one day. And the the parable is often referred to as the rich man and Lazarus. Remember Remember that parable? Jesus tells a story about a rich man who completely ignores this poor fellow named Lazarus, this homeless person living outside the gates of his property. Doesn't give him a penny. Jesus is pretty blatant to leave off the rich man's name in this parable. He names other people in the parable. He names Lazarus. He names Abraham. Abraham's in the story. He even refers to Moses. Moses has a name in this parable, but not the rich man. He's unnamed because he was worried about his own self-preservation. That storyline one, self-preservation. The other storyline of Ruth is the storyline of God's redemption. And that's the storyline that is much bigger than yourself. See, God always acts to to rescue and redeem. And then he invites us to be a part of that storyline. Have that as your story. What storyline are you going to follow? The irony in Ruth is that the unnamed man was trying to preserve his own estate, but in the end, he doesn't even preserve his own name. He isn't remembered. So think about that. This world is full of individuals who who flaunt their stuff, their possessions, and their status. And even if they're not flaunting it to others, they're flaunting it to themselves. And they got all this stuff in their living rooms, and they look at it. and They get used to seeing everything in its place, and so they rearrange it so they can see it all as new. Look at all my stuff, and it's just a futile way of thinking, hey... I'm really someone. I'm really someone. My name is a distinguished name. But think what this story is saying about Mr. No Name and Boaz. It is saying the way to make yourself really forgettable is to make your life primarily about yourself. That's the way to be forgettable. The one who is trying to preserve his name is the one who lost his name. The one who lives a life worth living is the one who makes his life about looking for ways to rescue and redeem others in some form or fashion, even at, even at personal cost, realizing I'm on, a, I'm on a rescue mission in my life. How do you live in the direction of God's redemption? How do you make that your storyline? Two simple ideas this morning. One, Listen to the legacy of love left for you. Because that's what Boaz did. Now, what do I mean? 
if you look in the Gospel of Matthew, if you want to hold this page in Ruth, flip to the very beginning of the New Testament, Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, there's a genealogy, and we often skip over the genealogies when we read them in our Bibles, but you don't want to skip over this one. So let's look at Matthew chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. It's reading this genealogy of, of Christ. Ram, the father of Amminadab. So there's Ram. He's the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Now we recognize Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Abraham's, not Abraham, Boaz's mother was Rahab? Like the Rahab who was the prostitute living in Jericho who met the Israelite spies and showed the spies great favor. And when the Israelites conquered Jericho, Rahab was spared when the rest of the the city was destroyed. Did you ever wonder what happened to Rahab? Well, here's, here's an insight into what happened to Rahab. Apparently, she was welcomed into the Israelite community. She was a foreigner living among a strange people, and yet there was some Israelite named Salmon who befriended her and who married her, and they had this child together named Boaz. And looking at the prosperity of Boaz and the story of Ruth, we can tell that Rahab's life must have radically turned around. And we can imagine her with little toddler Boaz, little young Boaz sitting on her lap. And she repeating to him time after time, Son, I want you to know about the one true God and how God rescued me out of a life of selling my body, doing unconscionable things, and how I went from being a foreigner among a strange people to a friend, and how God filled my life, Boaz. I want you to know about that God. Boaz, never forget what God has done for us. And so when Boaz saw Ruth, this foreigner who had lost everything, he remembered, wait, there is a bigger storyline for me to follow. And he reached out and he made that foreigner, Ruth, a friend. And listen, listen, listen. Everyone in the town blessed Boaz. May your name be famous, Boaz. Not so that you could be a celebrity, but may you be remembered because of your honor and your goodness. So Boaz is the hero. We need more Boazes. We don't need more people who will live for themselves. So listen to the legacy of love that was left for you. And then the second simple idea is leave a legacy for others to follow. Because you never know how far your act of kindness is going to go to the generations who follow after you. As I'll tell you, who was listening to the legacy of love left for him, so in verse 17, there's this genealogy 
Boaz and Ruth have a son, verse 17, and they named him Obed, and he was the father of Jesse, who was the father of King David. Why this genealogy at the end of Ruth? To show this far-reaching redemption of God. Because in Luke chapter 2, A thousand years after the story of Ruth happened, Luke chapter 2 tells the story of a boy, Jesus of Nazareth, and how he was studying the ancient Hebrew scriptures in the temple. He was listening to teachers talk about the scriptures. And look at Luke chapter 2, verses, verse 52. What a, what a, just a remarkable verse this is. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God. And man, Jesus grew in wisdom. Jesus gained wisdom and stature in this community. Jesus grew in his understanding of him being the true king in the line of David. David being the grandson of Boaz and Ruth. He listened to the legacy of love left by his ancestors, Ruth and Boaz. And he saw how Boaz showed love to the stranger, to this foreigner. And there came a time when God invited Jesus to fulfill his redemption opportunity. And he could have held back. He could have turned inwardly. But Jesus chose to save those who were foreign to him. Jesus chose to save those who were his enemies. Jesus chose to save me and you. And the story of Ruth and its great message of sacrificial generosity points to the generosity of Christ, ultimately. And the story says, you have someone who will come alongside you in your loneliness. You have someone who will come alongside you in your poverty or in your desperation You have someone who will come alongside you in your realization of the sin in your life that you just cannot escape from. You have someone who will redeem you. And of course, the beauty of this book, Ruth, if you read through it in its entirety, you don't get it as much just by looking at chapter 4, but you read it in its entirety. And and the beauty of Ruth is this joy that, that Boaz has when he thinks of Ruth. When he thinks of redeeming Ruth, Boaz is just, he's joyful over it. And and there's joy in Ruth in knowing that Boaz loves her and, and cares for her. And when she realizes that Boaz's activity and generosity is just a sign of, of God's providential love in her life just fills her with joy. And that joy and that love that we see in this book also is a sign of Christ, our Redeemer. See, when Christ redeemed us, he didn't, he didn't grumble a bit, saying, well, I guess this is just my responsibility, it's just my duty to do this. No, he saw it as an opportunity. So look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. 
for the joy set before Christ. He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So what was this joy that was moving Christ to endure the cross? Well, it wasn't, it wasn't God. It wasn't heaven. He could have had God. He could have had heaven without dying on the cross. There was a joy that Jesus could have only by going to the cross. And that joy, my friends, is you. That joy was, was his people. See, Jesus did not die for us because... He thought, well, that's just my duty. It's my responsibility. That was his opportunity to have you, to have you as. His, not just child, not just friend, but we, the church, being his beautiful bride. The good news we need to hear is that we have a Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who loves us. And even when things seem like they're falling apart around us, says, don't be afraid. I've got you. I've got you. And maybe you need to hear that extra this morning as you face something uncertain in your life. Maybe you've heard it before, knowing that Jesus has got you, or maybe You're in need of that Savior this morning. You need to hear his invitation for you to give your life to him. Your Redeemer, your kinsman Redeemer, so that he will always be with you and love you and protect you and provide for you. And then Jesus says, I want you to live according to the storyline of redemption in your life and look for someone, look for people who are hurting, and you can say, I'll be a part of your redemption story, God, to them. All right, let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you are faithful to us. Thank you that as we read this story in Ruth, and your providential care for Ruth by sending her Boaz, and your providential care for Boaz by sending him Ruth. We know that you today provide for us, and you are watching over our lives. And even when there's uncertainty around us, Things are not uncertain for you. You know how you will be faithful to all of your promises to us. Thank you for showing us such great a love. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.